We're in a series of preaching through the Gospel of John. We've entitled it, Jesus Is. It's our desire to get a better grasp on who Jesus is. We've learned he was God who became a man, and now he still is a man, and yet he's also God. And um, it's my concern that maybe we as a church and definitely other churches are not getting a full picture of what Jesus is out of an attempt to either be uh, culturally relevant or to be encouraging, we've left out the whole picture of Jesus. Um, one of the most listened to preachers in America via podcasting is Mark Driscoll, who pastors Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And in his book, Confessions of a Reform Missional Reverend, the first year his church was in existence, he visited a lot of churches because his church only met on Saturday night. And so he would go to different churches on Sunday mornings, and he was dismayed at the image of Jesus that was being preached. And I just want to read a few lines. He said, In visiting numerous churches scattered across Seattle and throughout the surrounding suburbs, rarely did I hear a clear declaration of who Jesus was. He was never presented as eternal God who became a man in culture to live without sin, to die as a substitute for sinners, and to resurrect in triumphant victory over Satan, sin and death. He was never preached as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords who's coming again to judge the living and the dead, sending the repentant to his heavenly kingdom and sentencing the unrepentant to hell. In the more mainline liberal churches, he was presented as little more than a marginalized Galilean peasant who took a beating as an example for the little guys of the world who get pushed around. In the more mainstream evangelical churches, Jesus was presented as sort of a buddy Christ you know, my homeboy Jesus, who was a motivational life coach who could help you lose weight, make more money, or just be enthusiastic about life, living life to its fullest. In both cases, Jesus was shown only in selective partial portraits that best suited the agenda of the church, which ranged from civil rights to environmentalism to prosperity to emotional euphoria, depending on the church. What I did not witness was an understanding of exactly who Jesus was and is and what he had accomplished through his incarnation, death, resurrection, and exaltation. When I read that, I didn't think of this as ammo to blast other churches. I just felt convicted in my heart. Lord, we preach in you for who you really are. If our vision is to know God and to make him known, we must be clear in our portrayal of Jesus. The Bible says he is God manifested in the flesh. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the son of God. And we understand God, according to 1 John, is Father, Word, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And we saw that three can be one if you multiply them, one times one times one. The universe is filled with examples of three-part beings or three-part realities. Water is ice, liquid, and gas. Um, Time is past, present, and future. You are body, soul, or mind, and spirit. The difference between us and God is He is in perfect harmony. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit reveals to us the Father and the Son. The Godhead is in perfect harmony, but with us, we can be in conflict. You can be sitting here right now, Your body wants to eat, so your body is crying out to you. 
Your mind wants to go see that new movie that hit the, hit the screen on Friday. And your spirit wants to hear the word. Maybe there's a longing in you to get somewhere alone today and pray and cry out to God about your issues. Maybe that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, really ministered to your spirit. You see? Your body, soul, and spirit. And so we attempt to present Jesus for who he really is and not to try to skip something the Bible says about him. Turn with me to John chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verse 6 today. Says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. I'm going to call him John the Baptist, but probably would be better to call him John the Baptizer because he wasn't a Baptist. But he was the Baptizer. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but sent to bear witness of that light. Now, John was Jesus' natural cousin. He was six months older than him. When his mother Mary, when Christ's mother Mary was pregnant, she went to see her Aunt Elizabeth. And the cousin of Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. John was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Became a radical prophet, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and the nearness of his arrival was at hand. We don't know much about his childhood, but we know that when he grew grew and became a Nazarite, which meant he didn't cut his hair, so he was a long-haired dude. Now, Jesus was a Nazarene from Nazareth, so we don't have record that he was a Nazarite because he, he did eat meat, so he touched dead things, and he did drink wine, whereas a Nazarite didn't drink wine and didn't touch dead things. So how did he survive? The Bible said his diet was surrounding a honey, wild honey, and locusts, bugs. Living bugs, you can put them in your mouth and eat them, and there you go, you've not touched anything dead. Now, some have taken exception to this and said, no, 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 he didn't eat bugs. In the Holy Land is a tree called the locust tree, and there's fruit on that, kind of like the carob bean, that they eat and they call those locusts. Well, maybe maybe because they look like locusts. But the Bible says he ate locusts, not fruit from a locust tree. It said he ate locusts and wild honey. The other reason why I believe he ate locusts is if you look in your Bibles, not right now, Leviticus 11.22. This will be easy. 11 and then 2 times 11 is 22. Leviticus 11.22, in the midst of describing the kosher diet that the followers of Yahweh were to do as God's people, the Israelites, they were allowed to eat locusts, two kinds of locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers. Anybody in for a chocolate grasshopper today? Verse 15, John the baptizer, or John the Baptist, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's proclaiming the preeminence of the Messiah, which is God, he is preeminent, and the preexistence of the Messiah. He was preferred before me, so he trumps me later on in his ministry. He says, my ministry must decrease, but his must increase. And he was before me. Jesus Christ did not come into existence in Bethlehem. If he did, he wasn't God. Because God has always been. 
Now, Jesus Christ as a son of man obviously came into being in Bethlehem when the word was made flesh, John 1, 14. Verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, or I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Because it was prophesied that Elijah would come back. And in a sense, he was an Elijah-type person. And I believe he fulfilled that prophecy, but literally he was not Elijah. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. He was an Elijah-type person. He says, I'm not Elijah. I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, is a prophecy that the time would come when a prophet would come who would have God's words in his mouth. Check it out sometime, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. I believe the prophet did come, and that prophet was Jesus Christ. He was an apostle. Jesus was a sent one. He was a prophet. He did proclaim truth. God's word was in his mouth. He was God's word made flesh. And he answered, no, I'm not the prophet. Verse 22, then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, is a prophecy about someone coming, proclaiming, a message of repentance in the wilderness. And this person was John the Baptist. Isaiah wrote in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the baptizer was the fulfillment of this. He went forth proclaiming the need to repent and prepare oneself for the coming of the Messiah. And those that were willing to heed his message, he baptized in the Jordan River. Make straight, straighten up, make straight, cricket, you know, repent of your crookedness. Every high thing being brought down, repent of your pride. Every low thing being brought up, stop seeking other things. God is the one to whom we serve, and he is sending his Messiah, was his message. Verse 24. Now those who were sent were the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. I'm not worthy to even untie this guy's shoe. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want to say it like I believe he said it. So hold your ears. 
Behold, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd like to speak to you today the subject entitled, Jesus is introduced. Behold, the Lamb of God. Watch this. If I had the pleasure of bringing out Christ, this is just how I would do it. It ain't got to be the way you do it. You might not think it's just right, but this is how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to list. He has done the impossible time after time. He hailed out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish, five loaves of bread. He can walk on water, turn water into wine. No special effects, no camera tricks. He has a head shot on every church fan across the country. Even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all kings, ruler of the universe, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, the bright and the morning star. Some say he's the rose of Sharon, and some say he's the Prince of Peace. Get up on your feet. Put your hands together. And show your love for the second coming of the one and only. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's our text this morning. He goes on to say, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Today I'm proclaiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I have a question for you. Has he taken away your sin? Have you received the benefit of that? 
For those of you that have received the benefit of that, not only is he the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So having had your sins taken away by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, has you allowed him to fill you with his Holy Spirit? Have you asked him, Lord, I want more of you. Fill me, baptize me with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John the baptizer was not the first to introduce Jesus' arrival. The angel Gabriel was first. Prior to his conception in the womb of Mary and birth to Joseph, the angel appeared twice. And also a group of angels were the next group, a group of shepherds on the day of his birth. Then we have no other records of anyone proclaiming him. But this first introduction was to Mary. She's a virgin. And the angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is in Luke chapter 1. And then he goes on to say, The Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So she becomes pregnant. Her boyfriend uh, Joseph is highly disturbed because he knows it's not his baby. They had not uh, consummated their marriage. They weren't married yet. And the angel appeared to him and said, Don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So I guess Mary really did have a little lamb. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Luke chapter 2, a group of angels appear to some shepherds and they say, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then a host of angels proclaim, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Can you tell your neighbor, Jesus is introduced? So, having been previously predicted and announced by prophets centuries before, he was publicly announced by his earthly cousin, John the Baptizer, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does this mean? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're going to look at the past, what it means from looking through God's revelation of himself through the past and then the future. Behold the Lamb of God. Can we say that together? Behold the Lamb of God. What, why is this so important to introduce the Son of God as the Lamb of God? In Genesis 23 and Exodus 12 are two stories. In Genesis 23, a man named Abraham an old man named Abraham and his old wife named Sarai had had a miracle birth. They got pregnant and had a son and named him Isaac, which means laughter, because on two occasions each of them laughed at the thought of them having a child. So they named him Laughter. He was the joy of their heart. And in Genesis 23, to test Abraham, to see if he really respected God, 
God asked him to put that son whom he loved, that son that he fought the fight of faith to, to receive, to put that son on the altar and offer him as a sacrifice. And so Abraham took his son on a three-day journey to the top of Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. And so his son's helping carry the wood and helping carry the, the coals or a means to make fire. And during this three-day journey, Isaac says these words, Dad, we're going to, what are we doing? He says, we're going yonder to worship. He said, here's the wood. Here's the fire. Where's the sacrifice? Not knowing it was him. And Abraham said these words, which I believe were words of faith. He said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And if, you, if we had time to get into it and look at it from different scriptures and different viewpoints, for three days, Isaac was as good as dead. Abraham was that committed to respecting God's request. But he also had faith that God could intervene at any moment to bring a substitute at hand. And he also believed his son could be raised back from the dead. If he gave him a son which was impossible, he could certainly bring him back from the dead. So it's as though Abraham believed the gospel. Three days, son as good as dead. Son being uh, substituted for or son being risen from the dead. Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? And at the last minute before he slay his son, his son was tied up and on the altar that they had built. And Abraham, out of obedience to God, was going to do it. And God sent an angel and put a stop to it and said, now I know that you truly fear me. And he showed him a ram or a grown-up lamb who was caught by the head in a thorny thicket. And there God revealed himself as Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees. And because he sees, he provides. And he saw Abraham's respect or Abraham's fear of him, and he provided the substitute so that Abraham and Isaac could both worship him. Tremendous act of obedience on their part, even for Isaac's part. He was already a young man by this time. That old man could have chased him all over that mountain and not caught him. But what an act of faith and trust in God, which was a picture of Jesus or the Lamb of God who died on the cross in our place. And guess what was on his head when he was dying? We have a, a replica of that there. Something made called a crown of thorns made from a thorny thicket. Beautiful picture of the gospel. The Lamb of God also is revealed prophetically through the Passover feast. Egypt had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, according to the Bible. Moses was raised up to bring deliverance to them. Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. I mean, this, is, this would gut their economy. This would bring on a great recession or a great depression. So I'm not going to obey God's command for me to let you go. And so God sent a series of plagues. In His mercy, He sent a series of plagues. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened every time. So the tenth plague was the plague of the Passover, which was going to be death that would go through the land and kill the firstborn child of every home in the land of Egypt. And through Moses, God revealed the way out for the Jews, that they were to take a lamb and kill that lamb and take that lamb's, and eat that lamb and take that lamb's blood and put it on the doorway of their house, top and the sides. 
And at night, when death would go through the camp, the death angel would see the blood on the door. He would pass over, hence the word Passover. He would pass over that house where the blood was applied. So judgment came to the land. The Jews were delivered. The Egyptians were not. Their hearts were broken. They became willing to let them go free. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. We celebrate Passover literally every time we take communion. The cup speaks of His blood. The bread speaks of His flesh which was broken for us. We receive the benefits of what He's done for us by faith and we celebrate it at the Lord's table every time we take communion. He is the Lamb of God. In fact, prophetically, He was the Lamb of God from the foundation of the world. And the entire book of Leviticus is devoted to the laws concerning how they were to worship God and offer up substitutionary sacrifices or innocent animals, clean animals, to God for their sins. And when you brought your sacrifice to the priest, he didn't interrogate you about your sins. You sure this is enough? You've been a bad boy. No. He examined the lamb. And if the lamb was determined to be perfect, it was an acceptable sacrifice. My friends, I want to proclaim today, Jesus was and is the perfect sacrifice. And when you come to God for the forgiveness of your sins, He doesn't interrogate you. You've been a bad boy, Shane. How dare you ask me to forgive you? I'm going to put you on probation for 10 years before you can receive forgiveness. No. God looks at the sacrifice. If the sacrifice is perfect, the sin is atoned. Behold the Lamb of God. Look, the perfect sacrifice that's going to take away the sins, not just of Abraham's children, but of the whole world. Are you glad about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God relates to us presently, not just in the fulfilling of the prophecies that were given in the past, but there's things going on in heaven where Jesus is seen as the Lamb of God, the resurrected Lamb. In Revelation 5, it is proclaimed that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll of God's judgment and to open its seals. Yes, this is the same Jesus on your Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt who is coming back with fire in his eyes and a sword on his thigh. He alone is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. The Lamb is worthy to receive worship. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is in the midst of God's throne. Now this is such a mystery. There is one God, and yet in the midst of His throne is the Lamb. Resurrected. The Son of Man and the Son of God. His blood helps the accused to overcome. We overcome by what? The blood of the Lamb. He has a marriage supper coming up. It's called the marriage supper of the And this lamb is the light of the heavenly city. And there is the lamb's book of life that all who enter the city must have their name in that book. My question for you today is, is your name in the book? Behold 
the Lamb of God. Do you know that your name is in the book? You may be a great person. You may say, you know, the Lamb of God stuff is good for you Christians, but for me, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. The Bible says none of us are good. To say we are good enough means the Lamb of God was not necessary. If we could become good enough, why did God send His Son? It cheapens God's holiness. It cheapens His perfection to say we're good enough. It dumbs down what righteousness is. Because every man is right in his own eyes. And basically, that belief is a form of idolatry. We're worshiping ourselves. Me and Jesus got my own thing going. I don't think so. The law was fulfilled by Jesus. But the law stands pointing us to Christ. And the law of Moses was wrapped around these Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, I'm not a polytheist. I, I, you know, I believe there's one God. Well, you know what? The devil believes and trembles. And yet God is not their God. The demons have Satan as their God. He's the one ruling their life. What is your God? It can be your family. It can be your career. It can be your car. It can be some pop star. It could be your favorite team that if they don't win, your whole world is ruined. That's idolatry. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Things are not to be in the place of God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord God in vain. This is not just cussing, but this is dishonoring the name of God. This would be calling yourself a Christian and then doing anything but live like one. And then refusing to repent to those you have wronged, even if they're unbelievers. Taking God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now keep in mind, Jesus took these laws, these commandments, and fulfilled them, and raised them to the level of the heart. He said, come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or I will give you Sabbath. It's not about the day that you go to church. It's about Him being the Lord of the Sabbath in your life every day. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise. It goes on to say so that it may go well with you and you may live a long life. And this is a matter of the heart, really. You can honor your father and mother to their face, but behind their back, hate their guts. That's not honoring. Matter of the heart. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus raised this to the level of the heart. If you hate your brother, you have got murder in your heart. Well, okay, I hate him. I may as well kill him anyway. You know what I mean? If you got it in your heart, you may as well do it. No, no, no. It's in your heart. Deal with it there, and you'll never have to deal with it with your hands. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I don't want a single person's thinking, Ooh, I'm off the hook there. I'm not married. No, but if you're fornicating... And one day you get married, guess what? Your present fornication is cheating on your future spouse. And you also weaken your future relationship because of your inability to have self-control. Plus, you have all those memories you have to deal with. You know what Jesus said about this command? Don't lust for anyone in your heart. Because if you do, 
You've got adultery in your heart. Fornication is in your heart. Yeah, it's there. I may as well do it. No, no, no. Better just to be you and not somebody else messing them up too. Get your heart dealt with. Thou shalt not steal. That includes cheating. It includes hiding wrong in our life. Thou shalt not bear false witness. This is lying of any kind. Falsifying papers. Stretching the truth. Lord, help us. Thou shalt not covet. This is a matter of the heart. It goes on, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Just don't covet. We have all broken one or more of these commandments. We need the Lamb of God. You need the Lamb of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but might have everlasting life. Can we stand? Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You for sending Your Son to become our Lamb, to die in our place as our substitute on the cross and paying for all our sins, the sins of the world. Thank You for that wonderful work done on the cross. And thank You that the Lamb is risen from the dead. Jesus, may every person here who's not called on Your name for forgiveness of their sins, the removal of those things that separate them from You and from others, Lord, I pray that Your Word would bear fruit in their hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.